Today on BFM, the Pensions Podcast, we are talking to Helen Dean, CEO of Nest, about what value for money means to her. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 52, series three, episode seven. We've got so many different ways of counting it uh, of VFM. I'm Nico Aspinall. I'm delighted to be joined today, as ever, by Darren Philp. Uh, Darren, how are you? I'm good. How's thank you, Nico. You're up in Edinburgh. I'm up in Edinburgh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and enjoying the, the PLSA uh, Investment Conference. PLSA Investment well, well, enjoying is um, maybe <laughs> a bit of a stretch, but it's, it, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, we, had, um, we had a great session, uh, first session with Paul Johnson. Mm. Um, talking about some of the really big economic issues, um, and the you know, his, his big big stick at the moment is talking mm. about some of the fiscal problems that the government has got. Um, right, you know, that's um, a short lecture. Then <laughs> it was really interesting. Like you know, who who would want to be the next government? That's all I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and today we're delighted to be joined by Helen Dean. So welcome, Helen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so you're CEO of Nest, and uh, imminently, so so a few weeks time, you'll be uh, heading off to is it is it retirement or uh, portfolio or what? Portfolio, what do you think? Yeah, I'm taking over as the chair of the Standard Life Master Trust. Ah. I'm also going to be chair of the Your Island Pension Scheme in Guernsey, which is a, mm. a new auto enrolment pension initiative that that the the Ballywick of Guernsey are setting up. Is um, is Nikki Cleo still involved in that? Yes, yes, I saw Nikki the other day. Yeah, she's um, she works for the states of Guernsey, hmm. and uh, I was over there doing a talk to some women business leaders, and Nikki was there. It was great to see her again. Brilliant. Hmm. So Nikki was um, director of the PPI Pension she- Policy Institute, oh. and um, she was, I think, it was private secretary to either the Financial Secretary or Economic Secretary when I was at the Treasury. So mm. Nikki and I go back a long way. Oh, you should walk around to and see where she's thriving. Such well, a lovely place. Well, I did get an email the other day, and this is this is this is um just between us friends, yeah. About about, <laughs> about asking me to um apply for um director of policy job, you know, for the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know fun. what? It's a beautiful island. It's it's a glorious way of life. It's very small. Everybody knows each other. It's uh, it's lovely. Great place to bring up kids, Darren. Is it? Is it? Mm. I think I I, I, I I half mentioned it to my wife, and um, I could just see the look on her face, and quickly moved on to what we're having for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and you get to use the word Balawick, um, which uh, I think is a fantastic. <laughs> So uh, we start, as ever, with the news. Helen, what have you brought in for us? So a, a kind of few different pieces of research um, that are floating around that I think, if you look at them t- together, tell us a story about what our members or our savers are facing. Um, and made, made, me, made me sort of wonder whether we're tuned in enough 
mm. members' needs. So, I mean, I would start with the PMI research, which says 49%, so about half of working adults have changed have changed their retirement plans due to cost of living. Now, we're all telling ourselves a story about how cost of living hasn't really affected pensions because people carry on saving, and they have, and that's great. But actually, many people are now saying, well, actually, yeah, I'm saving still, but I'm, I'm going to have to delay my retirement. Mm-hmm. And it's also very clear from that research that people are struggling to make contributions. So, when, you know, on the one hand, that's great. People obviously value saving for the retirement. And there's quite a lot of evidence that says at times of financial stress, people do value saving because obviously you you crave some financial security. But nonetheless, our members are saving at a cost to themselves. Then I looked at the People's Pension State Street research that talked about the fact that some people who've already retired are opting to come back into the place. looked at the fact that um, for many people, they're saying they don't expect a state pension to be a big proportion of their retirement income. Their private pension increasingly really matters to them, particularly because the state pension age is getting later and later. So if you you want to retire before 71 or whatever it's about to be, you're going to have to use your private pension to do that. And then some nest insight research that we've published, which talks about the impact of auto-enrolment on wider financial matters. So Mm. what we found is that there is a small increase, a very small increase, but a small increase in unsecured borrowing in people who've been auto-enrolled. There's a small improvement in credit score. There's a slight, very slight increase in debt defaults. And interestingly, people who've been auto-enrolled are more likely to take out a mortgage. So it feels like it's quite a prompt to being on a broader financial journey. What that I think tells us is that financial issues are interconnected. Mm. Can't look at pensions in a vacuum. And so you put all of that together and you think, well, you know, our our members are telling us that it's hard to continue to save, that they're struggling, but they want to continue saving, that that their private pension really matters to them and we know that private pensions have an impact on people's broader financial well-being and yet as an industry we are continuing to say well let's ratchet up pension contributions Um, perhaps we ignore the impact of pensions on wider financial well-being and tend just to think about pensions in a vacuum yeah, um, it, it's it's like we're in a bubble, isn't it, Helen? Yeah, I yeah, think. And and um, you know, pensions are great. You know, I've worked in pensions a long time. I know you have as well, Helen. And we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but you, but they're not special, yeah. And people have different different pressures. And I think that's what some of that research actually shows. And you know, you know, we we need to take a more holistic view, yeah, of you know people's lives. Because that's what this is about. Um, I remember, I think we talked um, either last week or the week before, Nika, about the um, latest PLSA retirement living standards. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, don't don't get me wrong, I, I love the idea of the retirement living standards. But blimey, they frighten the hell out of me now. Mm. Uh, you know, just the, the levels of income needed annually to get to, you know, even moderate. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you, the, the 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 size of pot or the 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 assets that you actually need to um, be able to sort of meet, you know, even quite basic income needs sometimes. It's just mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. Yeah. People's needs are complicated as well. We're doing some um, some work with Phoenix uh, within Nest Insight. So there's a kind of Nest Insight Phoenix collaboration going on, looking at um, how do we really assess what people need and what people can afford to save. And it, it's really individualised. Mm. It's really complicated, complicated by a range of very personal factors. You know, in an ideal world, you'd almost have an individual algorithm for people, which would yes. actually be a changing thing over time, which would be a combination of what they can afford and what they need. Mm. It would have a personalised goal for people. I, I do wonder whether AI is something that could take us to a place like that. And eventually, maybe what we need is an individual diagnosis for people that changes over time, that helps them achieve their personal goal rather than... Mm we've got at the moment which yeah. is very generalized yeah there's a there's a cultural aspect to this as well i guess that's what i sort of took from those uh that uh, um nest insights piece which is that if you sort of encourage a culture of saving then there's a sort of maybe improvements in cultures of fiscal discipline pieces as well so i was just sort of thinking about extending that to school um because it seems to me that uh you know there's there's very little to no education on uh, budgeting and uh, the roles of different savings pots um, and whether we couldn't get you know a pound a month or something going in for kids and you know from the state or however um, and just encouraging that sort of sense of compounding in particular and um, you know whether we couldn't because because I, I, I slightly fear the AI answer that you just gave and, it, and it's not to say that it wouldn't be part of it but there's a, I think there's a risk that we increasingly delegate some of those responsibilities. Um, and if you can integrate that with a feeling of greater responsibility, that, that I think be, you know, that's the sort of uh, golden, golden mean here, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. I would love to see a savings product mm. that's a bit more flexible and that I, I completely agree, Nico. Start early, get people saving, get people into the habit, create that culture. And create some kind of a savings product that has different elements, you know, to replicate the jam pot, the famous mm. jam pot idea. My mum actually used to have them. She used to, to have jars on the mantelpiece with the money for the insurance man and the money for mm. the, and yeah. the money for food in the jam pot. That is how people think. Yeah. And we should be thinking about reproducing those sorts of things in the way we deliver savings products so that they work for people psychologically. You know, they they make sense to people because people don't think in terms of products. We think in terms of products, pensions, ISAs. They think in terms of their finances. Mm. Yeah. We can just be a lot more customer, member-centric. No, it's, um, I think you're 100% right. And I know, um, Nest, is it Nest Insight? I think it's Nest Insight. I've done a lot of um, trials about sidecar savings, which yeah. has been interesting and, and fantastic. Um, but I think that, you know, there were some professional pensions, their weekly pensions buzz that we often cite on this. Um, there was a proposals by the Resolution Foundation um, talking about early access to pensions. Now, I'm not saying whether that's a good idea or bad idea, and the debate is incredibly nuanced. 
But you know the the response that you get from um, questions like that is was basically no, 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 again no, and that was one of the quotes from the from 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 that research. And I think that you know pensions are great; it's a great product potentially if it's done well. Um, but we but, but it doesn't necessarily always fit in with how people li live their lives and how mm. people think about things. And I think as an industry, we need to get a lot lot better. Yeah, about sort of putting ourselves in the shoes of the customer and designing products and designing interventions, um, you know, that really, really, that really help people and work with the grain of how they think about things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, back to my mum, you know, she used to have money for today, money for an emergency and money for the future. And the money for the future, would she would have put that, you know, she would have put she would have put that in a bank. That would have been somewhere that was a bit harder for her to access. But the point is, it was all money, and it, 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 it and, and it was all about thinking about how she used her finances to to live her life and manage her life. And so that's why I think Sidecar is so powerful. Mm. Keeps the pension money separate. Mm. Keeps means you can invest it for the long term, which is very important to be able to do. You get the illiquidity premium and all of that sort of stuff. But it also recognises that you shouldn't be saving for a pension at the expense of your ability to live in the day-to-day, -day, and particularly your ability to deal with emergencies day-to-day. -day. Mm. And so having some liquidity, which is separate from the money that has been locked away for the future mm. is really important. And we shouldn't, I, my view, we shouldn't expect people to lock money away for the future until we know they've got some liquidity for the present. It's very mm. important they have it. And, and with you, because I know you've done lots of trials on this and the, um, you know, how would I describe the outcome of those trials? Like, you know, I think people like it. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a really positive type thing. But but ultimately, I think the, the problem with the sidecar idea is it's, it's voluntary saving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you were to do it and to do it and get it sort of within traction of mass market, you almost need to do what we've done with auto enrollment, but into the sidecar. Um, so, you know, there's, there's the automatic diversion of money. Yeah, um, I mean... To me, the answer to this stuff is always going to be behavioural economics because mm. we've had such a success with auto-enrolment and we've done a similar sort of thing with Sidecar. Sidecar's fascinating because when you ask people, about half of them say, yeah, I'd really, I'd really like that. I'd really like to have some payroll savings. If you do it on an opt-in basis, about 1% of people take it up. That's what we found. Yeah, right. Say they want it, but they don't get around to it. Darren, that's pensions all over again. Yeah, that's exactly that. where we were. If you switch it and do it on an opt-out basis, what we found was it was between about half and 70% of people taking it up, depending on how you delivered it. So you, again, saw this huge increase in participation associated with just harnessing the inertia and using using an opt-out rather than an opt-in. Um, so it, it it really makes the case that if you want to do this sort of thing, you need to allow employers to do it through some sort of auto payroll deduction. So I think for those employers who want to do it, and there are many, mm -hmm. loads of employers who want to do this out there, it's not 
very easy from a regulatory point of view. So thing number one is let's just make it easier for those employers who are keen to do it. However, really want to get coverage and you really want to have a nation of savers and start to address some of the financial vulnerability that's out there. Arguably, you might want to mandate it in the way that we have done for pension saving Mm. and make the next phase of auto-enrolment incorporates some kind of sidecar emergency savings. That, I think, could be really, really powerful. And, you and, can... and radical. <laughs> and Very radical. But then we were radical way back in 2010 when we did auto-enrollment. We've mm. been radical once. We did it through building a national consensus. You know, why can't we do it again? I, I, I guess the because the, the, the framing of the debate is really interesting, isn't it? So, so we have a lot of in-work poverty um and uh i guess we in our sort of segment of society called the financial services sector sort of can't address appropriate pay for for workers um uh, and therefore those sorts of solutions i think um are very sensible to to propose i do hope that we at some stage have a government who cares about in work poverty sufficient that you know the minimum wage goes up that um the sort of calculation of uh hours and uh various other benefits well a means threshold the means uh, th- testing thresholds kind of come down um and you know that would then enable whether it's voluntary or mandatory uh you know a bigger pocket to 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 save from um but yeah it's all of these we're we're, we're just at a point in in the world aren't we where there's so many kind of crises that you could pick on that you pull a thread here and it unwinds something else and um that sort of judicious juggling of harms i think is going to be a very difficult thing for any political party or any any society to go through and i, and I think to some extent within the world of pensions we can do some things to address mm. maybe not in work poverty directly but certainly fair pay through mm. the work that we do on stewardship Yep. And the coalition of pension providers who got together to say to the major supermarket, supermarkets, you need to pay them living wage. You know, we are immensely powerful when we work together as an industry. Mm. Global yep. pensions, what did I see? I saw some other research saying that global pensions had increased to 55 trillion US dollars. Yeah, that's the Towers Watson numbers, um, the Global Pension Asset Survey, I think they call it, yeah. Um, That is a lot of money and a lot of power potentially to work in the interests of our beneficiaries. Mm. Pension funds are on the world. (laughs) Some of the world. Is that that, that, that your ambition, Helen? (laughs) <laughs> so 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 just on the sort of contribution level point um like what what, what is the right answer on this where, where, where do you see the contribution level debate going so for pensions you mean Darren? For, for, for pensions yeah yeah um i think personally and i'm talking from a nest perspective now mm-hmm. so i'm very much thinking about lower earners you might you might want to gear it differently for different rates of pay but for lower earners i think before we increase pension contributions further we should seriously think about doing that through a sidecar vehicle so that you have a feeder product Mm. and any increase in pension contribution goes into the feeder product first 
And it's only at the point at which somebody has built a reasonable level of um, liquid savings that it then tips into the pension. And that might be a thousand pounds. I'm also on the board of Step Change, which is the biggest debt charity in the UK. And so mm. we've done at Step Change indicates that if everybody in the UK had a thousand pounds in emergency savings, which most people don't, um, we could reduce problem debt in the country by one half. Wow. Mm. It's not, these aren't big, hairy, ambitious goals. These are achievable goals yeah. that would make a massive difference to the lives of ordinary people and stop them spiralling into high-cost debt. And believe me, I've seen from the work I do at Step Change, the consequences once somebody gets deeply into debt are frightening and it's very hard to pull yourself out of it because the magic of compounding that works in people's interests yeah. and pensions works massively against them mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. when they're when they're borrowing and that must be a really interesting gig for you um to sort of do the ceo of nest um you know thinking about the saving aspect but then having Let's call it a sidecar, um, which is uh, sorry, Nico, um, which is uh, looking at it totally from the other the other aspect. Yeah, and one of the first things we do at Step Change because we, you know, we we talk to people about their income and then we talk to them about their financial pressures. And obviously, one of the things we're trying to do is maximise their income. So we're trying to think about what can you stop. Are you claiming everything you need to claim and what can you mm. stop spending? And one of the first things we have to say to people is you need to stop saving in a pension. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, that's a strange thing for me as the CEO of Nest to say, but that mm. is the point. People shouldn't yeah. be saving in a pension if saving in a pension is creating um, a, a position where they are spiralling into debt. Mm. So I, I think you wanted to touch on another story um as well Helen. yeah the other one was um there's a um a, the pmi research also talks about the fact that oh it's really interesting i think it said two-thirds of people say that they do not believe that they have the required knowledge to choose their own pension provider that's a level of self-recognition there and i, I, yeah. I chimes for me i'm, I'm feeling a pot um, for life story coming and on I am, <laughs> no i start to think about pot for life and i think it is really interesting to think where are we going with pot for life mm. you're potentially requiring people to make a choice if we're requiring people to make a choice we're potentially undermining all of the harnessing of inertia that we've done with auto enrollment and we're requiring people to make a choice where they feel com- spectacularly unqualified to do that and and i suppose i would just say are we sure Mm. despite the fact that i along with everybody else at the headline level think wouldn't it be a great idea to rock up at your new employer and say i bank with barclays and my pensions with nest please Mm. it feels like a great thing to do it always feels like the right thing for the consumer to have that choice I just worry that there are all sorts of unintended consequences in there. And I think we should think long and hard about this before we introduce it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just thinking about, uh, do you know the Dunning-Kruger effect? Um, which no. is essentially, so they, they, they ask people about their level of experience on a topic. 
Um, and then they ask people to uh, rate their ability to make decisions on that topic. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Dunning-Kruger effect is essentially that uh, when you know very little, you 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 say you don't, uh, you've got very much uncertainty about a topic. When you're an expert on the topic, you also say you have a lot of uncertainty about a topic. <laughs> but it's when you know a little that you have the least uncertainty about your expertise. You said uh, two-thirds of people don't think they know enough to choose a pension. I heard one-third of people don't realise that they don't know enough <laughs> to choose a pension. Um, it's a joke about uh, two kinds of economists, uh, those who don't know and those who don't know that they don't know. Um, <laughs> but there's that famous phrase, isn't there? A little knowledge is a very dangerous thing. Mm, yes. So it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. There we go. Uh, well, that, that, that's a new one on that's that's very interesting Nico. I heard yeah. of that. this is a very educational podcast Helen. Like, you know, it's, it's all about you know continuous lifetime learning so so like i think um you know like pop for life like does does feel like an interesting concept yeah um, and you can quite easily um, come up with a lot a list of pros in terms of engagement, ownership, creating a connection between people and their pension. Yeah. Um, but I think you're you're telling it's, it's not something you do lightly. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know you were involved, and we'll come on to talk about this in a minute. Um, but you were very much involved in the pensions commission and the and the start of autumn moment. Yeah. And 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 some of these changes that we're talking about are so seismic yeah or potentially seismic that it feels that we need to not just sort of run a eight-week consultation and work out whether it's a good idea or not it feels like a a lot more work needs to be done before we decide to go down a certain path or not on some of this stuff Mm. i agree And, and these are big systemic changes what we've got at the moment is a multiplicity of different kinds of pension products out there Mm. it it if you had pot for life, you'd have to harmonise that a lot more. I mean, that may or may not be the right thing to do, but it's not an easy thing to do. Um, because if if you want to create pot for life, you're going to have to create probably a more, more harmonious system. You're probably going to have to create some kind of clearinghouse mm. for contributions, because otherwise I don't know how employers could possibly cope. So that's mm. big complex and hairy and how are we going to do it? Mm. We looked at doing it once before, actually, during the pension reform days, and we thought about using, try to use the HMRC tax systems, and HMRC weren't keen then. Do you remember the story behind that, Ellen? No, um, but I'm uh, sure you can tell me. But yeah, so, so, so this is a really interesting one, and it's, it's a slightly aside, but um, we, were, we were discussing yeah, um, about whether HMRC could do it, yeah, and and almost be the, the the collector of contributions, and then and distribute some stuff out. And at the time, um, you know, there was a number of reasons why it would be difficult for HMRC to actually do. Not least because PAYE is reconciled eighteen months after. You know, yeah. so, so there was there was quite a delay and quite a, a lag. And um, and you know, real time information um, was a you know a, a twinkle in the eye. Um, but the real killer for it, yeah, when we were discussing this was, um, and I think Mike O'Brien, who was pensions minister at the time, oh. was actually on the stage. 
Yeah, mm. and 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 it was it was it, who were we going to give employer compliance and collection to? And it was either going to be HMRC or TPR. And um, I think news broke that um, HMRC had lost um, seven or eight million um, child benefit records. Yeah, um, some some person left a disc on a train or something like that, and yeah. there was a statement in Parliament. And and I think um, Mike O'Brien went to the point of, "There's absolutely no way I'm giving HMRC or having HMRC anything to do with this like huge pension reform or, or something like that." <laughs> Isn't that amazing how big decisions get made on trivial yeah. things? Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah. And and and, the, and 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 the other thing about pop for life, I, I I think we ought to think hard about is marketing costs. What yeah. it's done is it's stripped stripped a lot of the acquisition costs out of the system. You don't have to market pensions because people are automatically enrolled, um, and the individual isn't isn't making a choice. What they have found in Australia, I understand from talking to some people out there is that the costs in the system of marketing in their new pot for life type world are massively, massively increased. Now, in the end, it's the member who's going to pay those costs. You know, we have to be realistic. Those costs will be borne by the member. And so is that really in their best interest? Mm. Two thirds of them say they don't know how to do it. As Nico said, the other third probably also don't know how to do this sensibly. What was the effect called, Helen? Can you, can, you, can you remember what the effect was called? Oh, I, I can't, it's I the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> so, yeah. Helen, I thought when you said Australia, I thought you were going to go back to the Royal Commission, actually. So the Royal Commission, I believe, essentially looked, and, the, you know, there's two types of pension schemes uh, in, in Australia. There's essentially the for-profit and the not-for-profit. Yeah. Um, and it's the performance of the for-profits is a percent lower than the performance of the not-for-profits and the marketing costs of the for-profits is about a percent. <laughs> right. So the member is explicitly paying for yeah. being marketed to. Um, yeah. And you saw as a result of the Royal Commission, a lot of the for-profits essentially closing down and consolidating and a lot of mm -hmm. pressure. There's a whole bunch of other reasons that came out of their Royal Commission. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, disappointing that that is essentially reversed by Pop for Life. Uh, you know, achievement to improve member outcomes reversed by consumer choice, you know, discuss. <laughs> mm, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'm with, I'm with you, Darren. If we're going to make big seismic changes to the system, we should think about them carefully and not mm. yeah and um, we should avoid um was it 2014 sort of budget rabbits out of a hat before an election to you know <laughs> abolish commu um compulsory annuitization you know for example that might have been one to discuss before <laughs> um yeah. labor party did something similar with winter fuel just to be politically they, neutral oh, yeah, they, I don't, they, we don't yeah. have an example from either side there yeah. were chancellors oh, to do this on well and uh next week uh we shall see uh what happens with non-dom tax and uh giveaways to working people um will. which will be a very interesting uh kind of shot across the bowels of whatever rachel reeves has been preparing in secret <laughs> Shall we move on, Darren? Let's not anticipate the news of next week. What have you got for us this week? Um, so I'm at the PLSA conference, so it's only right that um, I pick up a story from um, the investment conference up here. And this is in Pensions Age. And um, it's a story about DC investment in private markets hamp hampered by daily dealing. 
says TPR. Says TPR. Oh right. Oh well, there just, we go. Just, yeah, just, just, just to finish the story, and <laughs> and I think that um, you know, like I, we we we've we've talked about some of this before on this um, podcast, and I think that it's it's not quite a no, whatever Sherlock type statement, yeah. Um, but I do think that you know there are sort of bigger questions in terms of the construct of DC, yeah, mm. and um, how do we marry what we're trying to achieve from an investment point of view, longer term, versus the okay, yeah, and this this um, this desire to have have something where you know you you you, you get that real time information you can transfer out within a day, you know, um, it, it it doesn't seem to compute. And I think that again, this is a an example of sort of joined up policy making or, or lack of joined up policy making, whereby we should probably, if we want schemes to have a better opportunity to invest in the liquids, we should sort of step back and think, okay, well, what are some of the barriers? Yeah, and obviously, cost is a huge barrier, but we can deal with that through scale and you know some of the stuff, the fantastic stuff that Mark Fawcett. OBE. Well, uh, uh, but hang uh, on. So, 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 well, no, we can't. <laughs> oh, right. Well, let, so, let, let me. So, but cost, cost is, you know, the cost is the cost. You can improve your access to the cost with scale. But I mean, this is a global market for private assets. But sorry, I don't know. No, 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 no. I, I think if you've got a reasonable scale, you can do a better deal, can't yeah. you? Yeah. That's my got point. more bargaining power. More You've definitely got more bargaining power, but I mean, so does the Abu Dhabi Wealth uh, Investment Authority, right? And they paid the sort of fees that we're talking about. So, yeah. so there's a quality problem with cost here. Hard enough. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they do. Um, they're, they're very, very scary to deal with, um, but they, <laughs> they, they, they do pay these fees. Yeah, yeah and, and and there's um, I was at a round table a few months ago on on, on exactly this this point. And you know the good, the really good funds on this, like the really good um, sort of private market deals, they're oversubscribed. Yeah, and they're oversubscribed by um, you know from institutions like Harvard, Yale, you know other other others. You know, so in a way, if they would if they were dropping their price, then you'd then you'd worry. And there's no need for them to drop their price because they are oversubscribed. So if you're going for cheaper deals, then you you might be thinking, okay, are they as good as the other deal that's on the table? Yeah. That's, that's not the point I wanted to make. But the, the, the point is that you know, do we need daily liquidity when it comes to pensions? Yeah. You know, um, there's there's lots of discussion about transfers and transfer times and stuff. And you know, again, should we be thinking about this in a more joined up type way? Mm. That you know, should we just allow people to access their pension on the first of every month, for example? Mm. You know, and, well, what, and put all of the payroll contributions in on the first of the month. Yeah, no, exactly. So, so do all the know, switches are, on the first of the month. Yeah, yeah. Are, are there structural things that we should be thinking about from a not necessarily investment perspective, but a pensions admin and construct mm. perspective that could make um, some of this investment stuff slightly easier um, yeah. um, to actually have a go? Yeah, I, I do think it'd be really interesting. I mean, so because now that we have master trusts are at scale, so just because the unit is traded uh, doesn't mean that you have to trade on the markets on the first of the month. Um, so your your monthly payroll or the, the kind of liquidity is is you know less than a percent of your mm. your fund. Um, so you can whack it in a sort of 
cash uh, within the units, um, you know, you could manage that over time in, in a lot of different ways. Because at, at outset, there is a big risk that essentially all of the hedge funds sit on the sidelines for the other 29 days as well. And on the one day that they know that this huge lump of inward liquidity comes in, then they just they just love it. Let's short the market the day before. Let the mm. pensions funds increase mm. it. We'll, we'll make our money from the short. Um, so, you know, being too overt about your trading strategy and particularly which days you're trading and what you're buying is, is quite dangerous. Um, but you could now at scale manage that um would be my hypothesis uh, but you, it should also be said so you don't need you really need six monthly liquidity to do illiquids right. um so it's sort of i don't know how big the benefit is from on an investment perspective investing in liquids of moving from daily to monthly um i suspect there is some um the big issue i think is that trustees are still trained to believe that the scheme could collapse and everyone could leave next week mm. um and to plan for a you know, essentially a, a DB single employer risk where the one employer, I guess, might switch off um, versus uh, how many employers does Nest have? Like 10 million or something, isn't it? It's not, not, but, not quite 10 million. <laughs> one, one, yeah. 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 Oh, sorry, it's, it's 16 million employees, isn't it? Uh, members. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. There we go. I've got to get my orders and magnitude right. And, and, so and, when and, you've got... And, and just to finish off, um, how many assets under management now, Helen? About 35, I think. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? Well, TPP passed 25 the other I day. I know, I know. Um, which, I, I when I left, it was, uh, or the peak that I managed was 17, um, and they were receiving three a year. Um, so you do the maths about how the performance has, 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 has succeeded or failed since I've left. But I won't take any. But this is going to continue. Right across the industry. I mean, we're going to, obviously, I think everybody recognises we're going to see some consolidation, particularly in the master trust sector. But the but the growth in assets is going to continue. So mm. we're going to, we're, we're talking in the UK about having a relatively small number of very, very large funds, mm. very powerful institutions that should be able to really invest in the long term. Mm. And... Can I ask a bit of a controversial question? And it's something we have touched on a few times. Yeah, should pensions be run for not for by not for profits in that sort of master trust space? Are you, are you asking me or Nico? Uh, well, both of you. Like, it's a challenge. You first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think that. I don't think there's any problem in pensions being run by not-for-profits. Um, not-for-profits do a really great job, like Nest and the People's Pensions. So I suppose the question you're really asking is, should pensions be run by profit? Should Master Trust mm -hmm. be run by profit-making mm -hmm. organisations? Is that acceptable? Um, I guess I don't have a problem with that as long as they have a fiduciary responsibility and they are explicitly putting members first and mm. members are doing well out of it. I, yeah. I'm pretty agnostic about the structure that is used. I do think it's really important that fiduciary duty is taken really responsibility, really responsibly by trustees. I think there's a really good case for upskilling mm -hmm. uh, trustees. And I think you, the value of having larger organisations, larger funds, larger providers is that generally you can afford to buy in the level of expertise that 
that you need. Um, yeah. So no, I, I don't. I don't mm. have a, a mm. philosophical problem with people making a profit as long as that profit isn't obscene. And I think it's yeah, you're you're hundred percent right. It's that it's that fiduciary duty that's really important. But then, what stems from that? Um, well, so, uh, so, but, but also, what powers are you know actually in the orbit of the trustee? Because exactly, I think I think yeah. Nest is unique in actually having empowered trustees, um, where you know all the other trustees uh, running master trusts. And um, sorry, Helen, did you say you were going to the the um, uh, the yeah, uh, sorry, the Master Trust, not the IGC. Yeah. The so, so you will see that you're only dealt, you know, four particular cards and the other uh, 48 are not on the table, right? And with Nest, I think the other 48 are on the table and you say whether we can afford them or not. Um, but with other, other Master Trust, you know, the, 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 deck is, the deck is shuffled because that budget and commercial imperative is is there. Um, and operational, and there's a whole bunch of constraints which Nest trustees, of course, face as well. Um, but they are also masters of the destiny, right? In a, in a way that the a master trust trustee is, it, you know, on the wider projects is not. Um, and that's true at TPP as well. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the other thing, is, I suppose we should move the narrative away from uh, not-for-profit to profit-for-member. Um, so, so, you know, the, the the discussions at TPP around that kind of branding. Um, it's important that you understand the costs, um, and it is important that you have appropriate charges against those costs, and you do need to build capital uh, against the long term survival of your institution. Um, but if you happen to charge more than your costs, those profits should be returned to the membership and not either to shareholders or, by the way, to staff, because um, those those things are probably worse in the legacy mutual structures that we had in the 80s where mm. the staff were surprisingly well paid um and uh you know the sort of removal of one kind of take from those profits didn't didn't necessarily change the dynamics of how much the profit was taken mm. um we've we've done a lot of news already um should i i was sort of i was hoping to do a very controversial one um go on to the well i mean it's not my controversy so um Make My Money Matter uh, published their um, their research on uh, the climate action plans of the the master trust sector, um, and or the workplace pension sector, um, and uh, essentially gave a report card of um, you know must do better. I think if this was Ofsted, the school would be closed. Um, uh, so eighty five percent, everyone except Nest, um, terrible, inadequate, or poor. Um, I thought there was a story where they said we had to consider whether there was like an extremely poor category or something like that. Um, and um, so essentially extremely poor on um, uh, climate action plans. Um, so, you know, the story and the headline is that make my money better um, uh, are pointing out that pension schemes, are, are, you know, DC pension schemes are doing terribly um, at supporting members' uh, rights for existence in the second half of this century. Um, but then all of the providers, or certainly in this one, um, uh, Aviva Legal and General and Oh no! Sorry, those are the positive ones. Aviva Legal and General and, and Nest um, adequate, um, but then in this quote, so it's pensions age as well. 
Um, I think I've got a life site quote so the Towers Watson, uh, Watson WTW plan, uh, obviously from the People's Pension. Um, uh, we've got one from uh, Mercer. Uh, we've got one from Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, we've got one from Now Pensions. Uh, we've got one from Standard Life. Standard Life gets a lot of words in here. So um, basically, the report card on Make My Money Matter is what they're saying is poor, right? And I, I, I was really interested in um, just that kind of divergence between, I guess, a public pressure group, um, uh, you know, funded uh, by by a, a, a comedian who has that sort of empathy, I think, with a segment of the public um, and the uh, difficulties of kind of internalizing and working through what to actually do about net zero um, and how to not make a mark sheet from uh, Richard Curtis uh, to to, to say whether you're doing good, bad, or indifferent, but to make the mark sheet of like the real world and see whether you're having a, a kind of change. Um, so it was quite a, uh, yeah, I'd say controversy because like they're both right. I mean, that's the, the short answer, <laughs> right? Um, and but I'm sure they should, probably should be doing more. And I'm also pretty sure, having grappled with Make My Money Matter, that they probably don't understand what could be done in the world of DC pensions or possibly what should be done in the real world. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of put it. I'm not sure I have a strong view, um, but I sort of put it on the table as an interesting story that kind of crossed my desk this week. Um, it is an interesting one, and, and I think quite often with pressure groups, you know, um, they have to apply pressure, and that's mm. and that's part of what they do. Um, so you can certainly see, you know, where they're coming from, mm. and, um, and 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 why they've they've done what they've done. Uh, I, you know, personally, I really like what they what they try to do. Um, because it's all about raising awareness, yeah, and it's all about um, trying to, you know, get people to think about some of the big issues. And I think um, sometimes you have to not go rogue. I don't want to say this 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 report is going rogue, but but sometimes you really need to sort of sim simplify things and you know get that headline um, mm. to be able to 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 do some of this stuff. Um, I think they launched it at their at the select committee that was um, yes. that took place last week um, on um, fiduciary duty, and I think we've got Charlotte O'Leary on next week mm. um, from uh, Pensions for Purpose. Who you know we can talk about the select committee and stuff, and and in a part of it, you know, part of it's about making impact. Um, and you know, I, I yes, but what kind of impact, right? Well, so so they they say essentially pension schemes should not own uh oil and gas majors um and you know by the way pension schemes have a, a much underweight in the sector compared to the you know the rest of the world um uh through to having strict exclusions against that sector but they made record profits last year and uh the uh carbon emissions of the world went up so mm -hmm. Is that the impact that Make My Money Better want? It's just a sort of synthetic performative impact. Um, what I'd love to have the discussion, um, and maybe we can get Tony or, or even Richard Curtis on this podcast, Tony Burden, um, but, but I'd love to have the discussion about real-world decarbonisation and the positive role through stewardship that uh, schemes can have, asset owners can have, on talking to maybe not the oil majors. I mean, they do have a, um, a time-limited business model, mm. But, you know, steel is being stripped out of portfolios because it emits a lot of um, emissions. Um, but we still need steel. We're always going to need steel, I suspect, um, until we have some amazing carbon technology or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's, there's a transport. There's a huge number of sectors which are big emitters that I think 
um, you know, we're better investing, particularly in the ones who have plans to transition, encouraging them, highlighting the ones who don't mm. have plans to transition that you can't mm. be invested in because you don't have a plan. And that actually maybe that means your emissions go up in your portfolios because you're actually working with the ones who are going to have the steepest decline in emissions. So it's not it's not very obvious to me that their impact is one that's going to save the planet. Mm. Um, and I think that's the real conversation that that we as a society desperately need because it's so polarized and it's just everybody just jumps to one position or another um, and thinks that's politics now. But unfortunately, it's <laughs> it's, it's just noise. It was quite interesting. There is, a com there is a complex, sophisticated conversation to have about this stuff. Mm. But to have that conversation, you first need to grab people's attention. Mm. And, and I'm a big fan of Make My Money Matter because I think what they're doing is they are grabbing the investor's attention. Mm. And once we've done that, once we've raised awareness of the issues, I think there is a, there is a, there is a degree of education and there's a more grown-up conversation to have. But my nephew... He, for the first time ever, he works in the marketing industries in his 30s. For the first time ever, he contacted me on the back of that survey. And um, he said, wow, pension funds making a difference. Pension funds doing a great thing yeah. in the world. This is brilliant. He happens to be with Aviva. He said, I feel so proud to be with Aviva. I'm going to keep saving. It, it, it resonated with him. Now, I can now sit down with Stephen and I can have a conversation with him about how it's nuanced. But 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 unless you grab people's attention, you're never going to have the conversation. Yeah. I think the brilliant thing about what Richard Curtis and Tony Burden are doing is they're getting the attention. And we do need that. Yeah. Um, should we move on? I'm conscious of time. You don't have an answer. You, you, you don't have an answer, Nico. That's why you want to move on. But anyway. no, I do. But I, I mean, so um, it's too rude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they've grabbed that much attention, actually. Um, so, and I think they've probably think grabbed the attention good. of people who are close to already understanding it. Um, I think I'm looking out the window at the tr London traffic. Um, these bar these guys all kind of throwing carbon dioxide into the air. I don't think they've thought about it in a kind of climate change light. Uh, the mayor of London has forced them to think about it from a air pollution perspective um, and from a congestion perspective. But I don't, you know, they're, they're not actually thinking about it. So we come back to our behavioural finance or behavioural um, kind of psychology piece, which is how does change happen? Mm. Um, and my sense is that the people we need to be lobbying the strongest is the government. Mm. Um, well, I don't disagree with that. Nikon, I know you want to move on, but I think for the people who are already interested in this issue, understanding that the single biggest thing that they can do to make a difference is to put some pressure up on their car. the provider. But that's also not true, right? They could not fly, right? They could stop eating beef. They, I don't believe actually for a second that the single biggest thing they could do is, is put pressure on their pension scheme. And that debate is a really important debate, right? And we're having it. And I'm now having this debate with my nephew. He would not have got himself there if it hadn't been for the work of Make My Money Matter. He just wouldn't be engaged yeah. in the debate because he wouldn't have connected his interest in the environment with his pension. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I, 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 so I, I can't resist, but there's, um, there's also a miscalculation in the scopes, which is to put financed scope three, so the emissions of your holdings, 
alongside essentially if you're manufacturing the use of your products the downstream emissions so um i think logically the system of scoping emissions which enables make my money matters to say that the single basic thing that you could do is essentially to sell from oil majors is crazy um and i also think probably quite harmful in our pursuit of of these goals um but uh, i won't quite say it is what it is it, it is what it will be for the for a period of time until either we make it you know complex enough to deal with the complexity of the world or again governments kind of just put in place policies because somehow the ballot box works or dictatorships enforce it so there we go happy news <laughs> <laughs> so, so so helen how did you get into pensions <laughs> oh, how, how did I get into pensions? Well, I was a civil servant working in public policy and um, I um, there was a moment in my career where I decided that I wanted to make a move from working on the delivery side of government. So I was running big projects, that kind of thing. And I decided I wanted to move into a policy area. And my uh, boss time said to me, where would you like to go? What sort of policy area would you like to move into? And I said, do you know what, Hillary? I'd love to move into private pensions policy. And Hillary said, what? what, what why? <laughs> what? Why would you want to go there? It's a really boring, dusty place where nothing ever happens. I really, really was interested in private pensions policy for one reason, and that was because in the DWP, which was my department, almost all of the delivery arm, and don't forget I was on the delivery side of the department, all of the delivery arm was in-house. So you make mm -hmm. your benefits policy and the delivery is done by the benefits agency. So you've got a very big connection. You can basically, the policy people can tell the delivery arm what to do. It causes all sorts of tensions. It doesn't always work well. But it's a very simple relationship. I didn't understand how it worked when your policy was being delivered out there into the ether. Mm. You know, your delivery arm is really the industry. How does that work? And how, how, when you're formulating your policy, do you get your head around what works, what doesn't work, what is deliverable, what isn't deliverable? How do you engage mm. to get policy right in that and I just thought it was a fascinating um set of questions so I asked to go into private pensions policy for that reason just as I went into private pensions policy um the treasury got very interested in the question of under saving for retirement and mm. so I got caught up in the whole question of how can we actually encourage people to save for retirement um, so I ended up very much being diverted into what started off as informed choice and then became uh, the so commission and then and then auto enrollment. Mm. So we first met, um, I think, um, when you were, I think you were the head of the um, Enabling Retirement Savings Programme, ERSP. <laughs> Rolls yes. off the tongue. Um, yes. And, 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 you know, I, so I started in pensions um, the same day as Alistair Darling um, started as Chancellor. Um, and this was after the, the tensions between Gordon Brown and, um, and Tony yeah, Blair yeah. about the, 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 the direction of pensions reform. And, and, and it was a really interesting time to be, you know, working with DWP. There's obviously always tensions between DWP and the Treasury and stuff. They've got different objectives and that. But 
I always thought that, you know, what what a program. You know, it was it was transformational. Um so you know, what, what was it like being part of the competitors and stuff? What was it like being um, you know, one of the lead people on that program when you were you were trying to deliver such huge change to, to the industry? It was brilliant, it was terrifying, it was frustrating, it was exciting. Um, probably... sorry, about, so, sorry about the frustrating bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dealing with you, Darren, is always frustrating. <laughs> probably the most exciting time in my career because because we literally did start with this almost blank sheet of paper. What are we yeah. going to do about undersaving for retirement? And we looked at the evidence and we tried things. So I ran a whole series of pilots with the Treasury, actually, called Informed Choice. The mm. Treasury belief at the time was that we could advise, educate and inform our way out of this problem. And they took some, we took some primary legislation to enable us to require employers to offer advice and education free of charge in work time. Right. And I got my first job in all of this was to deliver the secondary legislation, the regs that would go with this primary power and I said well I don't know how to write the regs because I don't know what works and what doesn't work can I run some pilots please so I ran a whole load of pilots which we called informed choice where we did everything from handing out a leaflet to running a seminar to having one-to-one focused advice to having a one-to-one session with a financial advisor all free of charge all in work time, all delivered in the workplace by the industry, who were really fabulous in the support they gave to those pilots. I think three people took out of pension. <laughs> I was people we talked to, just didn't work. Um, and so there is the there is a piece of legislation that we could have brought in that would have had a considerable burden on business that would have had no impact at all. Mm-hmm. But because we did evidence based policy making. We realised that wouldn't work. And and that was the point at which we had a real problem because on the one hand, we proved to ourselves informed choice didn't work. On the other hand, Blair and Brown didn't agree on much, but they did agree that compulsory pension saving was not going to happen. That would be seen as a tax. That would be politically unacceptable. And we were left with an impasse. What on earth are we going to do? And that was when um, a guy called Robert Laslett, who was the um, the, the chief economist at the DWP and I found the work of Professor David Liebson at Harvard University mm-hmm. yep. when he was looking at auto-enrollment into 401k plans we persuaded David to come over and talk to us and he explained what he was doing with 401k plans and it was like a light bulb had gone on so Robert and I went across to pitch that to Adair and said look we think we found the solution here we think we know what's going to work. But just think about it. All we had was a few 401k plans in a completely different locality in the States with a very different culture, all of which had been delivered by employers who were who wanted to do it. And we were talking about doing this on a national scale where every employer, those who wanted to do it and those who didn't want to do it, were going to be in impacted and we didn't know whether it would work in the UK culture. Mm. It was an enormous, you know, you talked about radical policy making. It was mm. an enormous mm. experiment. Mm. Great big social experiment, really, auto enrollment. We the, didn't really know whether it would work. Yeah. 
And um, yeah. some of the estimates of sort of opt-out and stuff at the time we were looking at, um, you know, like the programme would have been deemed a success with 25% opt-out, I think, um, at, at, at one of the bounds. Um, and and obviously we've had opt-out, which is a, a lot, lot lower, um, mm. which which is obviously good. Um, huge delivery challenge, wasn't it, Helen? Um, you know, there were so many complicated things involved in terms of the legislation and the, the behavioural aspects of it. Like, you know, creating, um, you know, creating NEST and the legislation and the, um, the, you know, the way that NEST was created was just, was just unbelievable. Like, um, you know, hats off to people like Tim Jones and yourself um, for basically starting with a blank sheet of paper and just spinning up something that was going to, we will quickly become the largest pension scheme in the country, and mm. and you and you had the the whole political environment. Yeah, I think they call it the TBGBs, don't they? Um, in hindsight, <laughs> um, um, that that was sort of sitting over this, so it wasn't an easy political dynamic to navigate through either. Yeah, I mean, the, all credit really to Tim Jones and Paul Miners for their vision. Mm. Because if you think about it, what we were saying with Nest was, we want you to deliver a pension, which is low cost, which offers a high standard of service to everybody. You can't price differentiate. You've got to make it pay because in the end, we're going to lend you some money, but you've got to pay it back with interest. Um, but you've got no control over price. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and so the only thing that we could really control was cost mm. and when we went Tim, i remember tim and i going out and you know seeing other providers at the time and everybody they just had big filing cabinets and they were pulling cases out of filing cabinets and stapling checks to it and then bringing all the checks together and going off to the bank and cashing them i mean it was it was in those days mm. it wasn't exactly automated and tim had this vision that basically we had to digitalize pensions we had to have an e-pension and that was quite a fight to mm. get government to recognise that that was the only way that we were going to be able to get the economies of scale that was going to make this work, that, you know, enable Nest to deliver at the price point it needed to deliver mm. and enable us to be able to deal with the employer onboarding. Because, again, in an industry where, you know, a, a handful of employers a month would be considered, you know, I've had a pretty good month, a successful month. We were having a peak to do 2,000 a day. Mm. You know, you're not going to do that unless you've got something that's straight through self-service. And, and the vast majority of employer business just came in. They didn't even have to ring us up. It just went through. But that was that Tim's vision. And then... The guys at Nest, people like Gavin Perabet, the way they designed it and the work that TCS did in making it happen. Um, it, it, it was phenomenal. And for me, being part of something where you start with a blank sheet of paper, you run your pilots, you build the consensus, you take the legislation through, you then go and start Nest up. Everybody thinks Nest is gonna fall flat on its feet. Nobody believes it's gonna work. You demonstrate that it's going to work and then you build it up to scale and you know now we're very close to starting to pay back that loan it's just been phenomenal absolutely it's been, it's been a ride has, it's been a ride yeah. hasn't it it's uh yeah no and, and and hats off to you and the team helen it's um yeah. it's absolutely you know it's, it's crazy um 
And, you know, like look, looking back sort of, you know, 10 years ago or, or even 15 years ago, you know, would you ever have thought you'd have been in this position now? Um, probably not. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And to be honest, there's nothing about me, my background, my... There's nothing about me that would have predicted I would have ended up doing what I'm doing. You know, I was a slightly arty kid from a council estate in Newcastle. <laughs> a psychology degree. There's just nothing that mm. kind of would have predicted that I would ever end up where I've ended up. And that is something wonderful about life, isn't it? Mm, if you, just, yeah. you just take the opportunities as they arise and see where it takes you. It can be an amazing experience. But... Uh, yeah, uh, fabulous. A real privilege to be able to see something through from inception to, you know, where we've got to now, which is Nest is a big player in the industry. We've achieved mm -hmm. real. Uh, it's been wonderful. And I'm immensely proud of what Nest has achieved. Although personally, I think I stand on the shoulders of giants. The people at Nest are phenomenal. We talked about Mark Fawcett. There's also mm -hmm. Andrew Subaya, Paul Todd. Gavin Pereira Pets, you know, these people are the people who've built Nest and my God, have they done a fabulous job. Mm. And um, I remember, you know, when we when we first started, um, I, I won't call it fighting, Helen, because um, we, we've never fought really, have we? <laughs> um, but, you debating. know, we were, we, we were debating and, and you know, we were, we were, we were representing different um, perspectives. And, and I think the the achievement of PADA and DWP and Nest um to deliver that program yeah was awesome yeah um because you know a lot of people were very skeptical about whether you know yeah. um, a government could actually deliver something like this but also to you know to, to, let's just remind our listeners about you know the time of this so this was you know the real build was 2007 2008 2009 you know at the time of a financial crisis, you know, the world was imploding, yeah, and in, 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 especially in the financial services sector. And, and 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 to continue to deliver what you guys did and to keep it high enough up the political agenda that it was still a priority and there were some difficult discussions that were going on at, at that time, as, as, as we know, um, it's, it's, it was just amazing. So um, um, we we should uh, we should move on to the value for money question, but I didn't want to skip over the announcement that maybe you just made, which is that Nest is going to start repaying the loan soon. So, so can you uh, can you zoom in on that for a second? For is, us? is that a VFM exclusive, Nico? Is that is that what you're well, saying? That's, that's, I don't know. So it could well be how you put this on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, so so the you know the loan is a matter of public record. Um, it. It is getting quite close. I'm, you know, I don't know precisely when that'll start, but we are very close now to, um, to, to uh, no longer need. Well, we 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 not we should no longer need to borrow any money, and we'll be mm -hmm. pay, starting to pay back the loan quite soon. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I mean, that's the, the 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 biggest hallmark of success, right? Yeah, mm. I mean, I remember I remember going along to the public accounts committee pretty much a month after I'd started as CEO, pretty terrifying experience. And, you know, they they don't take any prisoners, those guys. And one of the things they were really, really tearing into me about was, will you ever, will this ever work? Will you ever mm. get money out of it? Will you ever be able to, mm. to, to, to pay the loan back? And I was saying at the time, yes, we will. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Um, 
But the only way to prove it is to demonstrate it. But it's now very clear this will work. Now, this is a radical model for delivering government policy. Mm. It always seemed to me strange that government never done it again. So you set up an arm's length body, you give it a loan, you give it a piece of public policy to deliver. In the end, that policy gets delivered at nil cost to the taxpayer because you have a loan to pay back with interest and you get your policy delivered. Mm. Why don't we do that with other things? There are other big pieces of public policy that need mm. to be things like, you know, long-term care. What, yeah. Why don't we think about using that model again? I, I, I do not understand why what is a very successful model in terms of the commission, the legislation, then and then the body that is set up to deliver. Mm. I don't understand why government haven't, repeated the model well, it, and, and and the attempt that uh, labor were going to apparently go through with the 28 billion a year essentially going into that model um has been removed because it's inverted commas unaffordable right so um it's a really interesting challenge um mm. I, I, i'm not sure people really understand long-term finance or can can narrate it well no but, but, but also there's um and Helen will know this really well. Um, the 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 architecture of government finances, yeah, is does the you know like the treasury cares about the next three years. The treasury cares about the scorecard position in terms of tax and spend, and and you know what the next three years actually looks like. Um, the the model doesn't really work particularly effectively if you're looking at big big long term investments. Um, because it's the short-term, long-term sort of trade-offs on this stuff. Um, I do remember, in terms of delivery in that, um, Helen, that um, I think I think you might have been on the program side at the time. Yeah, so probably sitting in between DWP and the Personal Accounts Delivery Authority, and when Tim Jones got appointed, yeah, and um, I think the first thing he did was come in and said, "Stop, we're going to stop." doing what we're doing now and we're going to plan this stuff properly mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and, and and we were all like oh my god 2012 is not that far away we've just got to keep going we've got to keep going we've got to keep delivering we've got to keep building and he said and he was really clear yeah to say if you carry on like you are yeah mm -hmm. you're building to fail mm -hmm. so spending three months now planning doing things properly really putting that effort up in front will then have a chance of hitting october 2012 and he was uh, right wasn't he i mean absolutely right tim johnson simon richards really simon richards, put the planning discipline into it um and 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 yeah we were sort of herring away at it and they said stop we've got to plan this properly tim went on to Moneybox with paul lewis and Paul Lewis said to him, I mean, it was only, he just started. Paul Lewis said, can you hit 2012? And Tim said, well, I don't know yet. I haven't done the plans. Mm. All hell broke loose. I remember. Headlines, you know, this CEO says he might not be able to make it. All Tim was saying was, I haven't done the plans yet. The really interesting thing was when we did do the replan, what Tim then said was, I'm not going to go live in, 20, in October 2012. There's no way I'm going live in October 2012. I'm going live in October 2011. because the And the reason I'm going live in October 2011 is the major corporates are coming in to staging in 2012. 
I do, I want some of that business. I need some of that business for the credibility of the organization, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. I am not going to get that business if I'm just going live in 2012. I need, I need about a year's worth of trading mm. to be able to establish that I'm a credible player. That probably so, annoyed me when I was a bit of people's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're going live in 2011 on a soft launch basis because when the major corporates get called to their duties in October 2012, I need to be a credible player. Mm. And so actually, not only did we deliver 2012, we actually went live a year early Amazing. Um, because we planned it properly. So, so we, should, um, we, we should... We should we, we do we do need to move on, but uh, but apart from Nest, Helen, yeah, I mean, you can't just say Nest as the answer. Yes, you can't. Um, what does value for money mean to you? We'll take Nest as a given, yeah? So uh, I suppose I would go back to where we started at the beginning of this conversation, which is, for me, the value that we provide for our members is all about creating proper financial resilience. So value for money for me in financial services is about creating real value for the member. Mm. That doesn't have to just be about their money. It can also be about the way they feel and their quality of their life. I think that is also very important. And I think what we need to do is we really need to understand how we create maximum value for our members. Um, so I would say, first of all, value equals having financial resilience across the whole of your working life, smoothing your income sensibly across the whole of your working life. Pensions is a part of that, but it's only a part of that. And we should understand our role in that ecosystem and have a much more joined up approach to member finances. The second thing I would say is what one, one of our members wrote to me and he said, um, thank you for signing up to Nest Zero. I'm really glad you did that because, frankly, there's no point in saving for retirement into a world that's not worth retiring into. So, so, so I think we need to understand also what really matters to mm-hmm. people. We, ha- we have a responsibility to invest their money in a way that feels right to them, that 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 resonates with them, that engenders their trust and confidence, partly because that's the right thing to do and it's part of value, but also I think that there's a financial factor there as well. Mm. Because the only way that people will continue to contribute regularly and adequately is if they trust the institution and the organisation that they're contributing to. I go back to my nephew saying, I'm going to continue with Eviva because Richard Curtis says they're good. (laughs) It, it, it is important to people that they're that they're engaging with a trusted institution. So I think trust is a financial factor and relevant to fiduciary. We need to, we really need to engender the trust and confidence of our members. We need to understand them better. We need to understand what matters to them. We need to communicate with them. Mm. A little, little, little side issue for me, one of the things that we did, and this I think also goes to value. So one of the things we did at Nest was so we, we, invest, we invest in the Hornsey Wind Farm, just off the coast of Grimsby. Um, obviously, we've got a lot of members in Grimsby. So we put some of those members in a boat and we took them out to the wind farm and we said, there you go, you own that. 
-hmm. the reaction. We videoed the reaction. The I reaction. Saw I saw some of this phenomenal. stuff. You saw it, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the visceral reaction. To, and, and, and it wasn't just about the wind farm. You know, we're talking about the impact that that wind farm has had on the local community. The whole of the dock area has been regenerated, loads of jobs and and you know the fact that they're part of renewable renewable energy the boost that people got from that so we, we call that our everyday investor campaign and it's our latest mm. and we'll be doing other things where we'll be going out and we'll be connecting our members with the way that we are using their money mm. to engender a sense of pride and confidence and trust in the end i think there's a financial factor there they're more likely to yeah. continue contributing so I think value is a very broad concept and we look at it far too narrowly. I remember um, I was chatting with Amy Mankalow uh, from Now Pensions, um, not Now Pensions now, she used to be at Now Pensions, but now is at um, BTPS Brightwell. And um, she was talking about some of the stuff that they've done um, and, and it wasn't as glamorous as um, taking members to a wind farm. Yeah, um, they, they actually took them to a refuse site. Um, yeah. um, but but and, and it was like you know it was totally bizarre because everyone was so interested in mm. in the process and how things are being done and and it, and, and it was just amazing like and and yeah. I think the more you can do stuff like that, it just connects people with their pensions, doesn't it? It, 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 it does. Creates... One of the guys said, "I didn't know." People think it's all about financial markets and money and moving money around. And one of the guys went, well, I didn't, I didn't realise pensions invested in real things. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is just so really exciting, I think, if you mm. can connect people with the way that some of their money's invested. I, I think it would be really interesting to, you know, maybe take members along to an AGM, show them voting. You know, back to your point, Nico, about the blunt instrument that is the Money Ma My Money Matter campaign at the moment. If we can get people's interest and we can start to educate them, we can start to perhaps have a conversation with them about the mm. fact that actually coming out of oil and gas in its totality probably isn't the best way of influencing them. I just think there's a big conversation to be had with people about all of this sort of stuff. Mm. But 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 pride, confidence, and getting their attention really important. Yeah. So do you think? Um, so the the framing of the value for money consultation and kind of consultation response was very much about that kind of financial value. So so it's sort of financial value, and then a whole bunch of stuff that you as trustees have to argue leads to financial value. Uh, and I'm very supportive of that that narrative you just told around trust being part of that financial value because we're talking about outcomes we shouldn't be talking about financial performance and if a member continues to save that must lead to a better financial outcome so do you think that's a bit sort of uh silent in the dwp's kind of piece do you do you, do you think it's sort of there but the trustees themselves would have to make that case um do you agree with how the value for money kind of work is 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 going in general i think well i, I mean i would start by saying i think it's there mm -hmm. I, I think if you interpret your fiduciary duty thoughtfully, you can see and you can easily make the case that it's there and you can link these factors back to the financial interests of the individual because the individual's saving behaviour is a huge determinant of their pension outcome, mm -hmm. probably a bigger determinant than costs or charges or anything else. Or performance, yeah. Getting yeah. to behave in the right way is a really big 
part of it. So trust and confidence is a big part of that. I, I, I guess it might be helpful, I think, if in if there was guidance that helped trustees to interpret fiduciary duty in that way. It doesn't seem to me that fiduciary duty needs to be fundamentally changed, but I think there is definitely some value, I think, mm. some leadership being shown by government, perhaps, in the way that fiduciary duty could be interpreted. Mm. Yeah. It goes yeah. back to account. We've done it for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. You, yeah, you, you, you got there just by looking at it and thinking about it and yeah. stuff. But I, I think that without that guidance... Yeah, and it's, it's not a fundamental rewriting of fiduciary duty. I'm I'm absolutely clear on that. Um, but without that guidance, people will always have a reason to not do something. And it's so, about removing those barriers, isn't it? I'm I'm incredibly struck that this is the only space where the lawyers set investment policy. <laughs> um, and that's a very dangerous state for society. Um, so it's only places who have the strength of internal resources and governance and character on the boards who can put the lawyers in their place. Mm. And in all other circumstances, I mean, I, I think I probably said on this podcast, I was on stage the other day and one of the lawyers said, um, of course, I think we all understand that markets are efficient. It's like, what? <laughs> Just so, so why does active management exist? <laughs> why, why do things not list? Right. I mean, it's just nobody understands that only lawyers have like been lobotomized to that extent and yet they're the ones who are telling trustees essentially where they might be at risk or not by considering these kind of long-term issues um which sit outside of the orbit of the sort of governance framework of a kind of three month to three year performance so um i think this is a great segue isn't it darren to to our next episode um where we have charlotte o'leary uh from pensions for purpose who i know we're, we're teeing up to talk about fiduciary duty um but yeah i think it's it's not we i don't think we have to tweak anything in law i think we have to tweak the lawyers out of the investment decisions personally i like the way you say tweak the lawyers out of the investment decisions <laughs> yeah there might be bruises <laughs> as a result of the tweaking <laughs> excellent helen have we covered everything that you wanted to uh, I think we have. Yeah, we've had a really good, wide-ranging conversation. I've really enjoyed it. It's uh, great I, fun I, to have you on. Yeah, brilliant fun. And it's, um, you know, I, I love the fact that you wanted to work in pensions policy at the DWP. I did. I really did. Yes, I think I'm unique in that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thank you for being such a good sport. Mm. Um, thank you for coming on. You and your team have have worked wonders and have che achieved so much. And um, you know, it's it's amazing to to look at it and just think back to um you know when this was nothing but on a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what you've built since then. And and one of the things I particularly like is the fact that yes, you know, you, you your numbers are really good. You're at the point of t tipping the, the loan and stuff, but you've changed the market. Mm. Yeah. So TPP, yeah, um, an organisation I'm very close to, Nico's as well. You know, um, we work there and stuff. Wouldn't have existed. Yeah, wouldn't have come into being if it wasn't for Nest. Um, so I think there is um, we we sometimes lose sight of the the supply side impact that Nest actually had mm. in terms of the structure and the values of the market. Um, there's probably a and, whole other podcast in that. But and, we, and just one last thing, we we've also I think stayed in our place, which I'm very proud of. The average member of Nest earns just over twenty thousand pounds a year. Wow. Ne right. Nest is 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 designed to be a solution 
that offers a great pension for low to moderate earners. Mm. And we watch hard to make sure that we don't drift up market. Yeah. Phil, Phil Winowen, who was the, Darren knows, who was, who, was, who was my boss during the pension reform time, said to me, look, Helen, all the other public policies, premium bonds, ISAs, they've all drifted up market. They're now middle-class things, even mm. though they were, mm. they were introduced for ordinary working people. Keep Nest, keep Nest in the heart of its target market. I'm immensely proud that Nest has stayed there. Mm. Well, nice, on that fantastic yeah. note, yeah. <laughs> um, God, no, I was just going to say no. Thank you so much, Helen. Mm. Um, always great to chat, and um, yeah. I, you know, enjoy your last few days at Nest. Yeah, thank uh, you. And, and 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 good luck in the portfolio career. And I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. We'll keep in touch and keep bumping into each other and you'll still be continue to be a force for good in pensions. Um yeah. so so next week we've got um Charlotte O'Leary, uh yes. Pensions Purpose. And then um we've got James Barham the week after from Schroders and um want to talk to him about um his lifetime savings initiative um that he's you know um he's he's part of and 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 trying to sort of think about pensions within that bigger picture so we can right. certainly um i'll get him to listen to this episode helen it will double i'm double sure up. he is already and we need to get tony on don't we tony bird and we, and we will so do i think well. that's a clarion <laughs> clear call from this yeah and we'll do that so now, thank you very much helen always good to chat and um until next time nico it's bye from me it's bye from me. Thank you. Bye.